Well, this morning we begin chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. This morning's message is entitled, The Second Missionary Journey. That was very creative, wasn't it? I came up with it. Well, look there with me, beginning in the first 12 verses, and we get a feel for the preparation phase of the the second missionary journey. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, also, uh, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were there at, uh, at uh, Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because he was, uh, he was the Jew, uh, excuse me, because of the Jews who were... Uh, excuse, excuse me, I'm sorry, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering decrees which had been uh, decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem uh, for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed through uh, Phrygian and Galatian regions having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonian uh, was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And we had seen the vision immediately. He sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea at Troas, he ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Now, what we have here in these first 12 verses is really the preparatory phase or the, um, the beginning stages of their second missionary journey and what has taken place. And again, that this journey is going is to be in the same region, the same place, the same cities of their first missionary journey. Uh, it's a different approach in that they're going to come from a different direction. So the first missionary journey if you will, in a very broad sense, they were traveling from west to east. And in the second missionary journey, they'll come up the back end and they're going to reverse that course. So they'll be traveling from east to west. But we're going to see them traveling through the same cities. And you know the purpose. On last week, we spoke about that. Paul was burdened for these new church plants. He was burdened to see how they were doing. He wanted to know how they were coming along in the faith. And he had one issue that he's particularly concerned about, and that was the Judaizers, right? We've just had the Jerusalem Council, where there the apostles and the elders banged out the necessities of the faith, dealing with the claims of the Judaizers. And what was it? That circumcision was necessary for salvation for the Greeks, for the Gentiles. And so they've worked through this, We've, uh, they've come to, the, to, to determine that circumcision is not necessary 
uh, because with circumcision certainly comes the keeping of the law, the Mosaic law. So they define this for all the churches in the Gentile area that this is not the case. Um, and then with uh, the two apostles, we have our two brethren that have gone back and they've delivered the decrees there in Antioch and they've preached there. And so now they're preparing for the second missionary journey and they're going to carry these decrees out to the churches. They're going to check on their spiritual well-being. They're going to continue to reinforce that what the Judaizers have been teaching if they have entered into these areas already. And Paul knows from the first missionary to some degree they have. He ran into them. And so they're going to go back and they're going to strengthen these new churches and they're going to encourage their leaders and they're going to actually plant other churches. So that's the purpose. And here in the first 12 verses really speaks to the, the preliminary work uh, getting ready to, for this second missionary journey. And the journey is going to go up through Asia Minor, and which is today modern-day Turkey. So back through the same region as their first journey. And that brings us to the beginning here in verses 1 through 3. I want you to see the recruitment there in verses 1 through 3. And so there uh, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And there was a disciple there named Timothy. And his mother was a Jewish woman, and his father was a Greek man. Now... Timothy was well spoken of there in verse 2. The brethren loved him. He was well spoken of by the brethren there in Lystra and Iconium. He was a well-known brother. And he was well viewed by the brethren there. And Paul wanted to take him with him. And so he took him and he circumcised him because the Jews were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, right up front, I want you to see, I want you to hold this overarching truth in mind as we think through these first three verses. Paul cultivates team ministry. You're going to see that all the way through. Paul cultivates team ministry. He does so in the churches he plants because he plants them and nurtures a plurality of elders. And he does so with his missionary teams, on his missionary journeys. He also he always cultivates a team ministry. So Paul and Silas came to Derby and Lystra first. And then again, they're going to reverse the order. They're going to go east to west. And Timothy is being recruited by them. So there's this young man, this uh, uh, young, um, very well thought of uh, Christian, is now, Paul's seeking to bring him onto the team. But we have an issue, right? He's got a little interesting circumstance here. His mother is Jewish. Now we know that she's a believer, the scripture tells us here that she's a believing Jewish woman, but her husband's Greek. Now, right out of the gate, there's one major problem for them. That's a violation of Old Testament law, right? So that's a mixed marriage according to, uh, the, to the Old Testament law imposed upon uh, the, the Jewish community. So she's, she's in violation there. And also, we find out that they're going to circumcise Timothy. That tells us up front, he's not been circumcised. So we probably got a Greek father that is not really particularly fond of the Jewish faith, of Judaism. He's not allowed Timothy to be circumcised. So there's some issues within this family. But out of this dynamic, which is certainly a family that's been shunned from the, Greek, uh, excuse me, from the, from the Jewish community, and Timothy, but Timothy is now, because of his mother from a Jewish perspective, he's thought of as Jewish. And the fact that he's not circumcised is a major problem within the Jewish community. But out of this, we learn that his mother has become a believer. 
And his mother, obviously, has been instrumental in bringing Timothy up in the faith. And we see that now the mother and Timothy are believers out of a very difficult and strained marriage and dynamic of two cultures. If you think about it, someone else in that family was also a believer, right? If you can run with me over further in the New Testament. Timothy's grandmother, right? Yes. So how, how, do, you, how do you imagine that they became to know about Christ and uh, were um, introduced to Christ in this region of the world? The first missionary journey. So you're looking at converts from Paul's first missionary journey. And now the bringing up of Timothy and the faith here. And apparently, Timothy's a sharp guy because, again, uh, he is very well thought of. And so Paul wants to bring him along. He's highly regarded, and Paul has this desire. He believes in team ministry. And so up front, let me say, so do we. We believe in team ministry. That's a picture that we see consistently throughout Scripture. It is a team effort. The church family is a... We're, we're by nature, by who we are in Christ. Now, there are roles and, uh, uh, that, that, we, that are taken up within the church family. There are dynamics that are structured within the church family. But in an overarching reality, we are all ministering to one another. There's, no, there's not a hierarchy within the church family where there is a group of people that are never able to learn and grow and be edified and be encouraged by any other group of people within the church dynamic. We're always learning and growing and edifying one another. We're always working together. In one sense, it's always a team effort. Again, we have roles, we have distinctions, but it is a team effort. And so, Paul sees this and he recognizes this and he sees the beauty of it and he tries to cultivate that. And in particular, Paul is always about the business of maturing and growing young men in the faith for the purpose of gospel ministry. And to that I say, and so are we. So are we. We're all working together as a team. We're all working to edify one another. And there is a unique aspect to that. And it is the working and growing and grooming and praying for the maturation of young men for gospel ministry. And for God to, to raise up out of that also uh, missionary endeavors where we're taking a family dynamic and carrying the gospel forth to a place uh, where, there is, where there is an opportunity to plant a gospel church. And so Paul is always a wonderful example of this reality, of cultivating this plurality of ministry, this ministry team endeavor. He brought Silas with him, right? And this came off of a very nasty little split uh, that we looked at on, on last Lord's Day. With, uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And so even the, the sin, the reality of that sin uh, and, and working through that, nonetheless, there's still this reality of bringing Silas, Silas alongside of him. And who else was there? So we're not going to bring Timothy in, but there was another, there was another person in this missionary uh, journey, this second missionary journey with them. Do you know who that was? Who comes along? Luke comes along, Right? Verse 8, Luke is always saying up to verse 8, they, they, they. And then we get to verse Luke and he's saying, we, we, we. At some point, Luke joined in. So Luke is along for the ride also. Paul prioritized training young men up for the gospel ministry 
And we, too, are in that same business, prioritizing, training young men up for the gospel ministry. And when we think about Timothy, and we look and we, if, we kind of, if we can hedge a little bit and look over to uh, where uh, Paul has been writing Timothy and where Paul speaks about Timothy in other epistles, particularly uh, um, 1 Timothy, and we get a, a kind of a feel for his personality, his makeup, how God has uh, molded Timothy. And he's equipped and well geared towards pastoral ministry. And that's what Paul uh, works, that's how Paul works him into the, to the bigger picture. Paul will send him to serve in pastoral ministry in areas where Paul has already been as an evangelist. And Timothy fits the role of a pastor. He's calm, he's patient, he's encouraging. Now Paul, on the other hand, being uh, more of an evangelist, a little more feisty, very vocal, very forthright, a different personality, Paul nonetheless saw the value of Timothy. He saw the value of Timothy's gifts and he sought to groom them. And so although their makeup is quite different, we see a beauty here of Paul looking to groom young men. And he's not always looking for men just like him, right? Isn't that a mistake we often make? When we think of a man that needs to be groomed, well, he's got to be just like me. If he's not just like me, then uh, he's probably not ready to be groomed or, or he may not be fit to be groomed. But Paul was quite different in his makeup than Timothy. Sees the value and the gifting of Timothy. And that's the beauty of the body, right? That's where we can get uh, um, kind of short-sighted on who we are, how we're called together, and how we're to love and edify one another. So this fiery, aggressive, and very vocal, really just full-on evangelist, takes the opportunity and the time and the effort to groom this rather quiet, calm, mild, in comparison, young pastor. And so it's a beautiful picture here in the dynamic we see in bringing this guy along. So they were different. But Paul took the time to groom this young man. And again, so training young men for gospel ministry is a priority for us. And it starts with prayer. And it also, with prayer, it it takes a very practical endeavor on our part. And notice, this didn't start, this grooming of Timothy didn't start with Paul, did it? If we look over into 1 Timothy, where did it start? With his mother and his grandmother. Timothy's grooming for ministry really started with his mom and his grandma. So ladies, be encouraged. Be encouraged. It starts with you. It starts with the grooming of young men at an early age in the faith. So ladies, be encouraged there by the grooming of Timothy's mother and grandmother. But verse 3, I want you to see something here. We run to a little bit of problem. Verse 3, it says, Paul wanted this man to go with him, so he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. Now wait a minute. We just finished working multiple Lord's Days on the Jewish Council. And that was centered around Paul's defiant stand against the necessity of circumcision for salvation, right? That's why they had the council. That's why they've had the letters brought back to Antioch. And now they're going to go on their second missionary journey. One 
one main piece of that, one main cog of that reason is to deliver this decree, the apostolic letter to these churches. And now, what is Paul doing? What is Paul up to here? Now Paul is going to have Timothy circumcised. Why? What's going on here? It seems to be contrary to what we've just been working through. Why is this happening and what in the world is Paul thinking? If you looked at the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, listen to the language here, speaking of Titus. He says, but, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I mean, Paul's opposed to this. He's opposed to circumcision being necessary for salvation. And he's right. And the Jewish council definitively declared that he was right. And they defended it all the way. And they're in unison here. And now he picks up his first guy that he's going to take with him and Silas on this second missionary journey. The first thing he does is have this guy circumcised. What's going on? What's happening here? Well, let's try to capture it here. And then we'll, we'll, we'll address it a little bit in terms of context. When the essence of the gospel is at stake, Paul is unflinching. He never compromises. Say with the Judaizers. They were preaching that circumcision was necessary for the Jews if they could be saved. If they were, in order for them to be genuinely saved, they must mark themselves off with circumcision. And then when circumcision comes, remember, the keeping of the law comes with it. The two are inextricably linked. And Paul to that, that, that the, the essence of the gospel is at stake there. You're putting, as we, we work through our, 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 our morning Bible study today on just this issue, you're then putting the grace of God, the free grace of God, and you're taking that and you're adding an element of man's endeavor to it. So you're reducing the freedom of God in salvation. And there Paul says definitively, no, forevermore, a thousand times, no. That's the essence of the gospel. So that's not what's happening here. Otherwise, Paul would never have Timothy circumcised. If the essence of the free grace of the gospel was at stake, it would be a definitive no. But here he has them circumcised. So what's happening here? Well, we get a little uh, clue by the language there. It says he had them circumcised because the Jews were in those parts. For they also knew that his father was a Greek. So this young man has a, uh, has a unique situation. For the Jewish community there, he's understood to be Jewish. But they recognize his father as Greek and they have a problem with the fact that he's never been circumcised. So at least his father is opposed to the Jewish community. There's, a, there's, a, there's an element there. So what's happening is that Paul is taking this young man with him, Timothy. And they're going into a Jewish area. And part of their initial journey on this, on this second missionary journey, they're going into a Jewish region. And they're going to carry the gospel to Jewish people. And he's simply has this young man circumcised to remove the barrier of him not being circumcised that would, that would be built up by unsaved, very religious men in that culture. It's just that simple. 
And you say, would they go to that length to remove the barriers for the gospel, the cultural barriers, so the gospel may freely go into that region? Yes, absolutely they would, and that's exactly what they did. So this young man, under Paul's direction, put himself under circumcision so that they would have a freer opportunity to enter that very religious culture that would be opposed to them entering if he was not circumcised in their eyes as being a Jew. So they eliminated some of the difficulty of going in and being able to then communicate the gospel. Would you go to that length? Absolutely they would. That's exactly what's happening here. So when the essence of the gospel is not at stake, so it's not a question of take of him taking circumcision for the understanding that it was required, it was necessary for his salvation. That's not what's going on here. The essence of the gospel is not at stake. And when the, when the essence of the gospel is not at stake, Paul will sacrifice and compromise many things for the sake of winning many to Christ. And so should we. So he put himself under circumcision so he would have easier access into that very foreboding culture when it comes to entering in and having access to freely dialogue concerning the gospel with this unique circumstance. The synagogues would be open to them, but there would be a wall up. What are you doing with this man from a child of a mixed marriage and a Jewish father that has not had him circumcised? That's a wall in that very religious community. And they just broke it down by that sacrifice. They put him under circumcision. Now, he's not bound to that in terms of his salvation, but he did it for the sake of removing barriers to the gospel. So that brings us to this question. We know it's not a mandatory ordinance. That's not what Paul was doing. He's preached against that. He'll preach against that till they kill him in Rome. So what's happened here? He's taken the opportunity to practice a wise, practical sacrifice for the sake of not creating barriers to the gospel. That's exactly what we're seeing here. And it is a beautiful, beautiful picture of who they are in Christ and the laser focus of their mission. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-21 speaks to it directly. Here's Paul speaking of himself. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. And there it is in a nutshell. And we see that practiced in real space and time through a pretty, gentlemen, a pretty serious sacrifice. Right? I mean, that's, no, that's no light matter. And they didn't, and they never, they never even batted an eye. This will help? No problem. But it's the heart, right, brother? It's the heart of the matter that leads them to never miss a step here. This was, not, this was not a long, drawn-out dialogue like the Jewish council. It was over. This might be a problem. No, no, we'll fix it. 
Because their own omission, their heart's desire is to get the gospel to these folks. And they understand in that there's obstacles in a fallen world. There's cultural obstacles. There's a plethora of obstacles in the, in the dynamics of this second missionary journey. They understand that and they have a heart's desire to eliminate them as best they can. So how do we apply that to our lives? Well, simply this. Removing obstacles to the gospel must be our priority for us as well. This is priority. When we can, if at all possible, remove barriers to the gospel, we will. We must make it a priority. Whenever we can so, in a manner that honors God and glorifies God, we must. Now there's a flip side to that. If that's our heart's desire, if that's our if that's part of our makeup in carrying the gospel, then there also has to be a counterbalance of that. That's going to cost us, right? That's going to cost. So there's the rub. There's the heart issue. And here's a more pointed question. Why are you doing what you do? These are things we have to pray over. Why are you doing what you do? Why are you doing it the way you do it? We do well to concern ourselves with removing all possible barriers to ministry. So let me give you some generalities. Comfort. Money. Etc. Etc. These are things we have to think through and pray through personally, but also corporately. This is a heart issue. What you're seeing here is the outworking of a heart issue. And the heart issue for these, for these missionaries is set aright by the glory of the gospel that has permeated every fiber of their being. And so when it's time to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, they don't even flinch. Actually, they take a wise step, but it costs them. And it's going to cost you. What barriers are hindering us as a church in ministry? That's personal, but it's not private. There's a corporate element to who we are. So see the decision-making of Paul and Timothy here and be encouraged and learn from it and pray for how we might apply it to our lives. And that brings us next to the delivery. Delivery there in verses 4 and 5. While they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees. Now again, that's the decrees from the Jewish council. And these are the decrees that had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem. These were the, 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 the standard for now how we will move forward as the body of Christ now that is spilled over into both realities of humanity. There, the Jewish uh, community and the Gentile world. So here's how we're going to worship together. And in doing so, in verse 5, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So here's what we take up front from this, from this little section here, from the delivery of the decrees. This is a big part of why they were going. This is a, this is a huge element of why they're going on this second missionary journey. It's, an, it's a pillar. They're going to deliver apostolic 
doctrine. That's what's happening. And we talked about the reality of, of apostolic doctrine and how it is united to Christ. It can't be separated from Christ. What Christ preaches is the same truth that the apostolic doctrine preaches. The two are not divided. They're unified in Christ. And so that's exactly what they're delivering here. And what we want to note up front is that clear doctrine is vital to the spiritual and numerical growth of the church. Now, we come uh, from a church culture that has been obsessed with numerical growth, so uh, it kind of makes it, it gives us a little cringe factor when we hear that, but we can't back away from it when we think about proper growth, which is people who were genuinely saved, being brought into a genuine fellowship for the purpose of edification and growth and the maturing in the faith to the glory of God. When you think about a right biblically founded membership and right healthy uh, uh, spiritual doctrine and a true growing in worship and a united church, there's spiritual growth and there's numerical growth. So both are right and pleasing and honoring to God in the proper context. And clear doctrine, apostolic teaching is foundational to that reality. So they delivered the letter in every city and what they were delivering was apostolic teaching. And apostolic teaching must be a priority to missionaries and to pastors. We must teach biblical truth. So when we come... For us to be healthy spiritually, for there to be spiritual growth and numerical growth that flows out of that. Scripture tells us here that the foundation for that reality is apostolic teaching or biblical preaching and teaching. So what we're told here is the proper methodology is a very straightforward delivering of apostolic teaching. That's what they were intending, that's what they were purposing to do in taking this decree to these churches. Here's apostolic truth. This is what we're going to do. And remember, this is a time now that we're in the age, uh, the, the apostolic age. So there's still the apostles of Christ here. Paul is one leading this missionary journey. He's an apostle of Christ. The New Testament is not complete yet. So the sealing of the canning, the, the, the finishing of the New Testament, then that will finish the apostolic age. But right now, they're in that unique age, and he's setting the standard, he's setting the stage for apostolic truth to be the foundational pillar of the church. Biblical, sound biblical doctrine is what we're seeing here, now implemented as being the foundational pillar for a healthy local church family. That's the methodology, straightforward apostolic teaching. So let's, let's, let's put away with this disnomer up front. This disnomer, I'm sure you've heard it, doctrine divides, right? Haven't you heard that? Well, let me say, before God and, and for our edification, that is definitively not so. Doctrine does not divide. Now, um, doctrine convicts, but doctrine also unifies. Doctrine clarifies. Doctrine prevails, but it does not divide. It unifies. It directs. Doctrine is inseparable from the power and stewardship of our narrative. It's foundational to who we are. So the old adage of doctrine divides is really, that's just a, it's just a, a nice little way 
to try to excuse oneself for wanting to believe what you want to believe. That's what it is. It's a little catchphrase thrown out there to deflect your, your attitude and your behavior and your falsehood. Now, will doctrine bring truth that, that mandates conviction, that demands conviction, that demands clarification, that demands doctrinal purity? Yes, it will. And in that, every man and woman will be brought before the truth of God. But that's not dividing. That's clarifying. Amen? There's a very big difference there. So when you hear that language, that is just a deflection. That is saying, I want to be my own authority, and I'm not real pleased with having the authority of Scripture over my life. So don't go for that ploy. Doctrine doesn't divide. We saw last week with a little spat from... uh, uh, By the way, remember it, the son of encouragement and the apostle to the Gentiles. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us, right? Division comes from people. People divide. Personalities divide. Doctrine does not divide. Doctrine unifies. It hurts. It's hard. It's refining. But it's not divisive. It's unifying. Never fall for that language. That's a language of fools. Doctrine unifies. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So it's inseparable to our narrative, to who we are. It frames our identity and our mission. That's what makes, that's, that's what frames us. That's what gives us our identity. Sound doctrine gives us our identity. So we must strive for and stand upon sound doctrine because sound doctrine defines who we are and what we do. Amen? So there in verse 5 it says, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. And knowing this truth, we are accountable to apostolic doctrine. Why? Because we are an extension of apostolic doctrine. Do you see that? It defines us. We are simply an extension of biblical truth. As we sit here today in space and time that our Creator made, and the, and, the, and the body of Christ, that is God's means of glorifying Himself among humanity. We sit here and that is our foundation. That is our identification. And we are an extension of that reality of God's work of grace. We're an extension of apostolic doctrine by God's grace. And Sam Walling gave a, a beautiful uh, 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 little snapshot here of a proper missionology, of, of, um, of a proper mission philosophy. Of, he calls it the heart of biblical missions. And uh, Dr. Walden goes on to say this, The key to missions is elder qualified men sent out to evangelize and plant churches on the basis of apostolic teaching and sound doctrine. There you go. That's exactly what we're praying for. That's exactly what we're striving for. That's exactly who we are. We're men and women coming together in a local church and praying for the missionary endeavor to be that. That elder qualified men will go out and evangelize and plant churches on the basis of sound doctrine, apostolic teaching. You see, we serve a God who speaks. Our God is a revelatory God. He has revealed Himself. And He has revealed Himself most pointedly in His special revelation. That is... His Word. That is the Gospel. That is His Scripture. Albert Moeller says this about 
the God of Revelation. He says, God has revealed the story that underlines every true story and in which every other true story finds its meaning. And there we see that all of life, all truth finds its meaning in God's story, His story. History is His story. It's the meta-narrative of all creation, right? God created. And when He created, He was pleased with creation. He created everything out of nothing and He was pleased with His creation. And He assigned responsibility to Adam and Eve, did He not? To lord over authoritatively creation to care for creation, to nurture creation, to enjoy creation, and to be fruitful and to multiply, to steward His creation. But then we find the fall, right? Adam and Eve with this responsibility disobeyed God and they brought judgment upon their sin. And the image of God was not lost, but corrupted. And all those now that would follow in Adam also will be corrupted. We are born in Adam. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And death and sickness abound. All are born under sin. And death is the final reality and picture of our physical death, the consummate reminder of the reality of our sin and the judgment upon man. But the promise of redemption is given there in the Old Testament, is it not? That's fulfilled in the coming of Christ, the unique God-man, who there lived perfectly under the law of God. Righteous under the law. And ascended the cross as the unique God-man. To die, to pay the penalties for all who repent and believe. To bear the sin debt of all who repent and believe on Christ. They're taking His righteousness under the law and imputing it into the sinner's account. Whether there he bears the sin debt for all who repent and believe on him. There he bears the righteous wrath of God the Father, taking the sin debt and paying it in full and imputing his righteousness to the sinner that we might be declared righteous before a holy God confessing Him as Savior and Lord, and there raised from the dead to vindicate that He is exactly who He says He is. The Savior, the unique God-man, and ultimately the one who will consummate all of creation. He will bring everything into perfect conclusion when Christ comes again. The resurrection from the dead, the final judgment, the division of humanity between heaven and hell, and the new creation or the new created order in Christ. No death, no sin, no sickness. Forevermore in the presence of a holy, perfect, the meta narrative. That's the truth. That's the reality of who we are. And it's all summed up in the creation of Christ for his glory for His purpose. And we see that in all the realities of mankind everywhere. We see this truth roll out in every manner of life. And for us, the holding of apostolic truth and carrying forth the gospel into a fallen world is central to who we are. And that brings us finally to the direction. The direction there in verses 6 through through 12. And it says there in verse 6, they passed through uh, uh, the Phrygian and Galatian regions. 
and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So wow, what's happening there? Now here we see a clear direction from the Holy Spirit to Paul as he's in progress beginning his first, the first part of his missionary journey. And the Spirit of God here, as he's moving, uh, the natural course would have been, again, to move from east to west and track back through. They, they've been east, they've been south, they, they've, and they're just heading west. That's a natural progression. They're heading to the larger cities. Ephesus is in that direction. So it's a normal course that you would go, just your natural intuition. If they were kind of, uh, certainly they were not uh, uh, bent on, on just doing their own thing, but that would be the natural progression there. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit stops them and prevents them from going, from taking that national course, which is what we call here going into Asia. Ultimately, they'll go north up to Asia Minor. Now, they'll come back to this region later. And Paul will evangelize in this region, and churches will plant in this region. But at this point in time, as they're just on their journey, the Holy Spirit enters in and stops them and prevents them from continuing that direction. And so what we must gather in here as we look at these verses, is this reality. God is sovereign over who gets the gospel. Now that's emotionally a hard pill to swallow, but that is a glorious truth. God does not owe the gospel, does He? And so when we see that, now we see grace spring forth. God does not owe the gospel, but He sovereignly grants the blessing to hear the gospel. That's grace. That's grace. But God is sovereign over His gospel. And we just see a little interruption here. And we're not given a reasoning, right? The, the reason never comes. We just see God at work. We see God in His sovereignty here. Now we do get a little foretaste because we know the end of the story. At some point in time they come back and they evangelize and churches are planted here. And it's glorious and we're thankful. But what we're looking at here is a follower of Christ. And the Spirit of God has clearly spoken to them. And so now it's either obedience or disobedience. And we're not even given why. But now it's obey or disobey. Recognize the sovereignty of God and don't kick against it or resist. Paul's not permitted by the Holy Spirit to go forward. He's rebuffed by the Holy Spirit. So what does that race us to? Well, uh, maybe a number of things, but at, at least John 3, 8, right? When we see that beautiful uh, illustration of the wind given there by Christ, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And there Christ, speaking to the the, the greatest teacher in Israel, makes this clear, vivid illustration of the work of the Spirit of God in salvation. The Spirit comes and goes as He pleases. We see the evidence of His work, but we don't see the Spirit in terms of 
uh, of knowing what the Spirit's going to do. We're just seeing the effects. And here is another example. The Spirit intervenes and stops and cuts them off on their natural progression here. And in verse 7, we find an interesting language here. Um, The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. Do you see that there? So the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to go any further. So the Spirit of God is uh, um, here in a uniquely way connected, united in this language here to the second person of the triune Godhead. Often we see uh, God the Father and God the Son connected in Scripture in a very uh, beautiful and and unique ways. But here's a beautiful picture that reminds us of the, the connection, the unity of God the Son and God the Spirit. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus here. And so it's beautiful language and it helps us, it reminds us of the unity of the triune Godhead in, in salvation and the working among men. And if you think about it, um, the Spirit of God was central in every aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry. The Spirit of God is the, is, is the one who formed the human uh, uh, body of Jesus in Mary's womb. From the very beginning of His earthly ministry, it was the Spirit of God at work there forming the human Jesus. The Spirit of God anointed Jesus at His baptism, therefore His earthly ministry. So there you saw a beautiful picture of the triune God at work in the earthly ministry of Christ, where there God the Father says He is pleased with His Son and His willful submission to the Father's will to come to, to, to enter into humanity and take on flesh that He might identify for His people and save them ultimately through His atoning work in space and time that He created. And you see the Father pleased with the willingness of the Son and the Spirit there ministering Him ministering to Him and anointing Him for His ministry, His earthly ministry there at His baptism. And certainly He sustained, the Spirit of God sustained Jesus through His ministry. We see that time and again. And certainly in the garden, uh, we see that most poignantly. And He supported Jesus during His sacrifice when Christ was anguishing on the cross, bearing the righteous sin of the Father, the eternal, righteous, right-hot sin of the Father on behalf of His people. He's bearing their sin debt. There, the Spirit of God is ministering to Christ. And again, united in a, in a, in a beautiful way to Christ's earthly body at, after the resurrection. So we see the Holy Spirit there working in Christ's earthly ministry throughout the whole process. And that helps us understand the theological importance here. The Holy Spirit draws near to us in grace and authority. And He does, th- he does so through the accomplished work of Christ. So that is to say, we receive Christ by faith and repentance according to free grace of God. And that reality grants us free access to the ministry of the Spirit. So just as freely as Paul heard from the Spirit of God here, we too have the same free access to the Spirit of God who indwells us as God's people. We have it because of the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. They're interlinked. They're connected. We cannot separate them. But because Christ has redeemed us, therefore we have full and free access to the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now is this connecting the dots here for you? When we see the beginning of this text, who are we? What are we to be doing? How are we to get our directions? How are we to go about that, the working out of our ministry? 
How are we to hear from God and respond in obedience? How are we to know where the gospel is, at, is essentially at stake or where we are called to sacrifice for the sake of carrying it? All the work of the Spirit directing God's people. And so here we see it in a poignant way. Now it comes to a climax and the Spirit just breaks in and says, okay, stop. I'm going to take you in another direction. And so we can call upon the Spirit because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Know that. You have full access to God the Holy Spirit. The saving power of the Spirit is linked to the atoning work of the risen Savior. You can't have Christ without the Spirit, and you can't have the Spirit without Christ. Come with me down there to verse 9 and note there, and here we see a very poignant turn in the process. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then verse 10, notice here, When they had seen the vision, immediately they sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians, to the people in the region of Macedonia. So wow, how do we think through this? Now we just saw saw a massive uh, uh, just reminder there of God's sovereignty. He just reversed the course. They were going due west, they're going due north now. And we'll say up front, we'll touch on this in a moment, but, but note up front, there was no hesitation by Paul, was there? Immediate, okay, amen? Somebody? No hesitation. Just hold that, we'll let that hang a little bit. So he says, come to Macedonia and help us. So God has called them, they, they deduce here, they, they take from this, that God has called them to preach the gospel in the area of Macedonia. And that's going to run through the, through the cities there and that's going to continue on to Philippi. That's going to end at Philippi, a, a large military colony. So let's lay a, 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 a theological foundation here so we can stay on track. Now, some will take this and they'll say, well, that was the people of Macedonia crying out and the Spirit was so moved that the Spirit of God sent this vision uh, appearing as a Macedonian to call Paul to turn their course, to bring them there because the people were, were so longing and hungry and itching for the gospel. That minimizes the sovereignty of God at work here. That's not at all what happened. Nothing else in Scripture lines up with that. That's a fairy tale cultivated by man. What has happened here is that the Spirit of God has moved them, called in a different direction. Scripture tells us that no one seeks after Christ in and of his own capacity. We're fallen in sin. We're darkened in sin and we have no capacity in and of ourselves to seek God on our own initiative outside of the working of the Spirit of God and the Gospel. So what we have here is the reality that no one seeks after God to be saved outside the influence of the gospel. We are totally depraved. But lost people need the gospel, don't they? And there were lost people in Macedonia. And God is sovereign. And God has called His missionaries to turn, to turn course and go minister the gospel to people in need in Macedonia. Amen? That's what he's called them to do. Now, what we've got to see here, God is sovereign. So you can, you can get hung up on that later this afternoon. What we have to see here is the response. 
Yes, there's needy there. There's needy. There would have been needy, needy people uh, in other in the areas they were headed. Lost people need Christ, and we must be broken over the lo- over their lostness. But we do not receive like Paul special revelation, do we? Yes, they're lost. Yes, we should be broken over the lostness. Yes, we we should long with every fiber of our being to carry the gospel to them. It's my goodness. And a real point in space and time, we were in their shoes. Lost, hopeless, outside of Christ. But now, we have this circumstance here. And we have the methodology, the means through which uh, the Spirit of God directed them. The Spirit of God directed them through a vision, through a revelation of His will. Now, I just said that we have the same access to the Spirit of God as Paul. And we do. But the Spirit of God is not going to speak to us through visions and revelations. Why did this happen to Paul? He's still in the apostolic era. Now, we have the sealed canon, right? Settled and finished. The apostolic age is put away and now Scripture is our final authority. Does the Holy Spirit still direct us just as profoundly, just as clearly as He directed Paul through a vision and revelation? Yes, He does. But He does so through the Word. Okay? So here when we think about application here and our need and our desire to carry the gospel to the lost... Know that we don't, receive, we don't receive this kind of revelation. But we should still be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, just like Paul, should we not? He was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, and when the Spirit directed him, he responded. Psalm 25, 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. Now you have to ask yourself this morning, as we sit here this morning, do you really believe that the Spirit of God will instruct you just as clearly as He instructed Paul? Do you really believe that? Because that's what's at stake for us. Do you believe that? Because Paul had a vision. Paul had a revelation here. The Macedonian came and spoke to him. Do you believe that the Spirit of God will just as clearly speak to you? That's the question. Because that's what Scripture tells us. We can be directed just as clearly as Paul. We can hear from the Spirit of God just as clearly as Paul. Psalm tells us here, What man fears the Lord? The man that fears the Lord, he will instruct him in the way that he should choose. You believe that? Now, we can do foolish things with that. That doesn't make it any less true. The Spirit of God will lead us, but we do not seek the Spirit through vision and revelation. We do not forevermore. Amen. We do not. The apostolic age is over. And we certainly don't trust our own logic. Not in and, of our, you know, in and of ourselves. That's a train wreck waiting to happen. Rather, here's what we do. Here's how we hear from the Spirit of God, just as Paul heard from the Spirit of God. We pray over our decisions. And we pray over our decisions and make sure that they're informed by Scripture. And then when we get to the reality that we must pray over our decisions and have them informed by Scripture, we have to back up one more and say, okay, our understanding of Scripture can't just be in and of our own intuition. We must have the Spirit of God 
inform our understanding of Scripture. So we have to back up again and pray for the Spirit of God to inform our understanding of Scripture and then to take our informed understanding of Scripture and lay that over our understanding of our decision and our direction. And we're praying for all that to be true in the process. And it's an ongoing reality that we call the Christian lifestyle. And our logic and our intuition is, is really put aside, put under the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and informing us and informing us and our laying our decisions before the Spirit of God as we study the Word of God informed by the Spirit of God and we bathe those things in prayer continually until we trust that we are hearing from the Spirit of God directing us and how we should, in which way we should go, if you will, and then we are to respond in kind. So no prayerless study of Scripture. And to that, as this process folds out, now here we go, unity in the church, always learning from one another. And to that, we add what, brothers and sisters? Don't disappoint me here. We add wise counsel. Hallelujah. No one, it's never me and Jesus under the shade tree. We're informed, the Spirit, begging the Spirit of God to inform our study of Scripture. We're taking our study of Scripture and laying that over top of our, of our, of our decision. And in that, we're seeking wise counsel from other brothers and sisters that are doing the exact same thing. And I'll say this. The Spirit of God is not going to lead you in direction where, in a direction that all your wise brothers and sisters have said is unwise. And when we're talking wise brothers and sisters, that means that's given that those brothers and sisters are laying, their, laying that decision under the Spirit informing their understanding of Scripture that they're applying to that decision that's, that's, uh, that's addressing your life. You with me? Just mark it down. And, and why we can't live that way is, is evidence of our frailty, of our weakness. When we do live that way, it's evidence of our obedience. We are to be wise counselors to one another. And that means we are to be living as those who are abiding uh, in prayer and abiding in the study of God's Word. And then we can be edifying to one another. Then we can be wise counselors to one another. I'm gonna, I'll say this up front. I, let you, I will not make a decision uh, for my life concerning this church family until I've bathed it in prayer and sought my brother's uh, advice. I will not. If I do, you remind me of what I said this morning. Play the tape for me. I will not. I cannot. It's a fool's errand to go this route. Seek wise counsel. Hear me out on this. Seek wise counsel. The Spirit will not lead you and a path that your brothers and sisters unite, united upon as unwise. He will not. Just mark it down. He loves His church too much. Now, our, our job is to discern wise counsel, right? That's what we all need to be striving for, to be that wise counselor. Proverbs 26.16 says it very clearly. The sluggard is wise in his own eyes, wiser than seven men who can give discreet answer. And finally, I want you to see that Unlike Paul, God speaks to us, of course, the Word by the Spirit. But God directs us just as surely. And we, know, we can know the direction of God, the Holy Spirit, just as surely as Paul. 
And again, we do, th- we do so through the study of prayer and scripture and wise counsel. But I want you to note this. That is true of us. So, that is true of us. so also, like Paul, when we're prompted to respond by faith to the direction that's clear to us from God, and we know what God wants us to do, then we are to do it. It's one thing to know what God wants you to do through the proper channels and then pause on it. When we know this, then we do it. To not do that, to continue on in prayer, hoping that, come on, I'm not alone here, hoping that God will just not give you something so scary to do. So it's clear, but just going to pray a little more because surely He'll change it because that's too scary. That's not trusting God. That's not trusting God. When it's clear to you, do it. Just like Paul, do it. Follow through. Do what you know God wants you to do. When you know God wants you to do something, do it. Now again, that's within very clear parameters that I've tried to set up this morning, right? Okay. Don't keep praying. That's for, for another way out. That's a lack of trust. And finally, as we close this morning, let me just say this. When we come to this kind of text, there's a very clear reality that there are some here. As the Spirit has made very clear to you that you must repent of your sin and believe on Christ. You must repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just as clear as Paul heard from the Macedonian, you hear from the Word of God. Repent and believe on Christ. It's a clear duty from Scripture for us to repent. To repent of sin and believe on Christ. Scripture promises us that if we seek the Lord with all our heart, we will find a perfect Savior. So we can come and we can ask the Spirit of God, help me, help me to believe. Give me the faith to believe on Christ. That is the beauty of it. And for some, that's the clear revelation to you that sits inside these walls. Christ has called you, commanded you to repent and believe on Christ. And if you do so, if you pursue Him, a promise from Scripture, if you seek Him with all your heart, you will find a perfect Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for our opportunity to to come and gather under the truth of Your Word. We thank You for um, these poignant truths that rise up from Your Word concerning the work of the Spirit in our lives. We thank You for the reality that You indwell Your people and that You... The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and informs us and illuminates truth to us. And oh, how frail and how fragile we are. But we thank You and we praise You that You take Your Word and You minister to us that we might walk rightly. That we might um, learn to hate our sin all the more and love You and treasure You and glorify Your name with our lives. Would You help us to see that we are part of apostolic preaching, we're an extent or, or of apostolic doctrine. We are an extension of apostolic doctrine because we are your people. And so, would you take your truth 
And would you minister sweetly to us that we might go forth and be light, that we might endeavor to do what you have called us to do, that we might hear from the Spirit of God and respond in faith, and that you would be glorified. I pray that you would help us to minister to one another, that you would uh, help us to strive to be fit, to be wise counsels for one another, and that we would... uh, although we have differing makeups and differing gifts, that we would long to encourage and edify one another and see men built up for gospel ministry and see families built up and nurtured and brought forth to go out and carry the gospel and plant a gospel church in other areas. I pray that you would do this work in us, that we might hear from you and know your direction for our lives and respond in faith. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.